This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. It has been said that each new justice is a new court. As the 2022 Supreme Court term winds to a close, the first term to include all three former President Trump's nominees, court watchers, policymakers, and concerned citizens have new information about how each of the nine justices apply the 230-year-old U.S. Constitution to modern legal disputes. Indeed, each court decision exposes the tension that arises between a constitutional democracy's power to enact laws and the constraints imposed when those same laws must comport with constitutional principles. To observers, it can be a relief when the court's majority limits legislative prerogatives that they do not favor, but unsettling when the court strikes down laws seen as necessary for our modern polity. Nevertheless, each case reveals the complexity and nuance of each justice's view of their role in the process. What has this term told us about the philosophical makeup of this court? How do the most recent high-profile decisions reveal each justice's views? And what does the court's makeup suggest about how it may rule in the future? My guest today is legal scholar, author, and senior fellow of constitutional studies at the Manhattan Institute, Ilya Shapiro. His new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of the Nation's Highest Court, just released in paperback this week, looks at the controversies of past courts and their decisions. Mr. Shapiro will share with us the way in which individual philosophies influence justices' decisions, how the cases in this current term reveal the views of the nine justices, and what those views will likely pretend for the court's future decisions. When I return, I'll be joined by constitutional scholar, Ilya Shapiro. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by author and senior fellow on constitutional studies at the Manhattan Institute, Ilya Shapiro. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ilya. Good to be with you, Joe. A lot's uh, happened since we last talked. Indeed, it has. I don't want to dwell on the past. Uh, we're, we're always looking forward. Uh, but there's two big pieces of news uh, just this week. One, of course, is that you are now a brand new member of the Manhattan Institute. Congratulations on that. Uh, the other big piece of news that I'm sure our listeners are interested in is that your wonderful book that we discussed in an earlier episode, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court, just came out on uh, soft cover. Uh, yeah. So paperbacks, Very soft. Uh, Very soft. plugging yes. the show, it looks good, it looks bigger uh, for nope. our listeners who already bought the hard copy. Uh, is there any difference with the new um, um, uh, paperback? Uh, yeah, so I caught some typos. That's always good to do. Uh, and I added an epilogue, uh, about 3,000 words, on, uh, well, what's happened since the hardcover came out in the fall of 2020, which is two more justices, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Indeed, a lot has happened. Uh, perhaps not a, a whole new book's worth, but a lot certainly to talk about. So let's jump into, we want to do a around the world sort of a review of what's happened in this past term. Everything, everything's been decided now. Uh, we closed the book on this this term. So let's do a little uh, recap and, uh, and start at the beginning. Uh, I want to talk about uh, judicial philosophy, um, specifically as it uh, pertains to the nine justices that we now have, uh, including Breyer. We're not going to talk about Ketanji Brown-Jackson just yet. Um, 
But before we jump into the cases themselves that were decided, let's uh, define some terms for our listeners who are not constitutional scholars, ones that have been thrown around in the wake of the decisions. Specifically, what is what people will call an originalist? Uh, what is what people call a textualist? Uh, we also have heard the word institutionalist. And finally, uh, what I would call uh, broadly consequentialists. Uh, so let's start at the beginning with, uh, let's say, originalists. What, what does that mean? Originalism is a, a method of constitutional interpretation that looks at the original public meaning of a constitutional provision. That is the um, original constitution, the, the powers that are granted to Congress that was uh, ratified in uh, 1789. So what does the power to regulate interstate commerce mean uh, when it was ratified in 1789? We look at the Federalist Papers, we look at contemporaneous dictionaries, we try to figure out what those words mean. Or the 14th Amendment, obviously much in play this term, the meaning of due process of law, the meaning of equal protection. Uh, what did those words mean uh, when uh, the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868? So it's 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 not uh, getting trying to get into the head of James Madison or Thomas Jefferson and what would they have thought of violent video games or something like that. It's it's looking at the words on the page, trying to understand their original public meaning. And look, originalists can disagree, just like historians can disagree about how to interpret uh, certain events uh, in our in our history. That's that's okay. Both both judges and uh, academics uh, uh, can have a lively discussion, but that's what originalists try to get at. Textualist is is a related uh, uh, interpretive method that's applied to statutes. So um, we we focus on the text of the. Clean Air Act, say, that was at issue in one of the big cases this term. And so when, when that was passed in the 70s, when it was amended in the 90s, uh, what do those words on the page uh, mean? Again, not what uh, uh, Congress or the sponsors of the legislation intend, uh, not what someone might have understood it to mean, they could have been wrong, but what do the words on the page actually mean? What does the text mean? Uh, and then you get to um, uh, institutionalist, which isn't a method of interpretation so much as uh, an approach. And so John Roberts, the chief justice, is often called an institutionalist because uh, he operates not primarily at trying to get at what the text means necessarily or the original public meaning of a provision is, but he wants to preserve the institutional reputation uh, of, uh, of the court and so might want to move uh, uh, not as quickly as some of his other colleagues that say, I'm just going to interpret as I see fit and let the, the chips fall where they may. Roberts tries to be a little cagier, maybe narrower in, in what kind of uh, opinions uh, he writes. And so an institutionalist cares about the institution. Uh, for that matter, it doesn't have to be just the court, could care about the institutions in general, Congress, the presidency, uh, you know, maintaining those big things rather than a focus on the words uh, on the page. Uh, and finally, consequentialist or sometimes uh, related uh, might be a, a pragmatist, uh, you know, looking at the consequences, the result of a particular holding of a particular ruling might be. Uh, and, you know, either with a view to not rocking the boat too much, either with a view of, I don't know, not costing uh, the government too much money, not disrupting society in some ways, or in any event, weighing those practical concerns uh, in some measure, not not exclusive to everything else, but but that's a significant part of 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 what that kind of jurist cares about. 
Indeed. So uh, you, you've laid that out very clearly. Um, before we get into you know how each uh, justice uh, ruled on every case, is there a single continuum on which you could map each of the justices? Well, we're often talking about uh, uh, liberal or conservative or Republican and Democrat. Is is there a, a continuum or is it more a scattershot? There's so many dimensions of, of the way uh, a justice can look at a case that it doesn't really map to what we would consider uh, political preferences. Yeah, I think I think it's too simplistic to call talk about a spectrum or even a three dimensional uh, spectrum because there's more than kind of three um, axes uh, on which one can can look at the justices uh, or can any 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 judges um, uh, methodology um, in terms of you know the the practical outcomes of their votes. You know we can talk in shorthand and we do talk in shorthand about you know liberals and conservatives. That's unfortunate because. Uh, I don't think any of them uh, make decisions based on trying to implement liberal or conservative policy uh, preferences. Um, you know that tends to you know end up uh, as the case for the, the the most politically salient controversies. Uh, but it's 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 shorthand that you know can be useful in talking uh, shortly. But it's you know I I, I would certainly not want uh, the public to generally think of them as as junior varsity politicians. Uh, ideologically, let alone in terms of uh, partisanship. I, I hate it even more when people talk about the Republican justices or the Democratic ones. I sometimes talk about the Republican appointed justices or the Democratic appointed justices, which is, is again, somewhat useful shorthand um, because that's often relevant and increasingly relevant in modern times because the, the parties seem to have adopted divergent theories of interpretation. Uh, but still, um, you know, you, the, the reason why you're interviewing someone like me is to, to drill down beyond the, the shorthand that you can in like a tweet or a, a short uh, associated press story about the news of a particular case. Indeed, you you are careful when you in your writing in your books and your, your articles to to uh, to um, discourage lazy thinking and, and reducing everybody to uh, uh, political uh, through the political lens. So let's again on, on, by way of background, let's start with some history of how we get rights. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as a rights-based society. Uh, those rights, foundationally, if we're talking about the Supreme Court, they're looking to um, the instantiation of those rights. I, I hope you'll agree that that starts with the Constitution. Um, so let's talk about, we, we often refer to the first 10 amendments as the Bill of Rights, um, uh, which uh, by my reading are, are so-called negative rights or, or natural rights. Um, those are the rights we can't have taken from us. Describe for our listeners, what are we talking about when we talk about um, fundamental rights or those rights in the Bill of Rights? Well, those are separate questions uh, in a sense. Uh, the legal scholars talk about enumerated rights, which just means listed rights. The first eight amendments um, uh, say, you know, the First Amendment, speech, religion, uh, right to petition, right to assemble, Second Amendment, right to keep and bear arms, uh, etc. Um, but the founders were careful to add a Ninth Amendment that says that the, the enumeration of these rights is not to deny or disparage others that are retained by the people. Uh, and so uh, to the extent that modern jurisprudence, and we'll get into this a little bit because that matters in how Dobbs, uh, the abortion case, and Bruin, the Second Amendment case, were decided. Um, to the extent that we, you know, uh, think that unenumerated rights, those that aren't listed in the first eight amendments, are somehow secondary to the ones that are listed, that's uh, clearly not what the the original public meaning, uh, nor the the original intent of the framers uh, would have would have been. We talk about fundamental rights uh, in a legal sense, not in kind of delay. 
conception of what is fundamental, what's basic, what's most important. But in the legal sense, um, because of the way that the jurisprudence has evolved over decades, specifically for unenumerated rights, those that aren't listed, um, uh, courts often ask, uh, is a given rights claim, is that based on something that's fundamental? Uh, or, or is it ancillary? Is it not a, a core right that we have uh, under the Constitution? Uh, I don't think that's quite the right way to look at it because the, there's no indication that when the framers were um, uh, instituting their um, uh, the constitutional provisions, uh, or especially uh, when the framers of the 14th Amendment, the post-Civil War amendments, uh, were looking to protect rights, um, you know, they could have, they had the English language, they had the terminology, they could have said these are the fundamental rights. They didn't do that. Um, you know, they, the 14th Amendment speaks of uh, due process, privileges or immunities, equal protection. Um, they could have just said the first eight amendments are now applied to the states, but they didn't. They spoke in these, these other terms. So the modern jurisprudence has gotten away, I think, from the original public meaning of, of, of rights protections. But nevertheless, uh, going back to the 30s in a case called Caroline Products, the, the famous or infamous footnote four does bifurcate rights effectively into fundamental and non-fundamental ones. And that's why, especially with unenumerated rights claims, rights that aren't explicitly listed, in the first eight amendments. Uh, that's what jurists tend to think about is, is a particular claim involving a core or fundamental right. So the, the constitution establishes enumerated rights, lists them, and then says in the ninth, there are other rights that are not here, but uh, nevertheless are rights uh, as well. Uh, you mentioned the 14th. I want to go a little bit deeper on that because it does speak, uh, does have um, uh, influence on some of the um, uh, decisions that came down this term. Uh, I'll read it. Uh, my favorite part of the 14th Amendment is from Section 1, a quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person without his, within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. So uh, effectively, as you mentioned, it says that these uh, uh, liberties or these rights that uh, start uh, or that are protected by the Constitution um, at the federal level also apply to the states. Uh, say more about the fact that uh, reading more deeply, uh, I, I, for myself, I discovered both. It means that states can't infringe on rights, but also it has a, a affirmative obligation to protect rights as well. Say, say more about this. Of course, uh, the 14th in the wake of the, the Civil War and the, and the stain of slavery, but you know, that's the context. But say more about what that means. The original Constitution only protected us against the federal government. The Bill of Rights only protected us against violations by the federal government. That's why uh, the post-Civil War amendments, the 13th that outlawed, that outlawed slavery, the 14th, which you just read, uh, and the 15th, which uh, prohibited um, uh, racial discrimination in voting, uh, that's known as the second founding because it fundamentally reoriented, uh, restructured our constitutional order such that uh, an individual uh, could go to federal court to enforce his or her own um, individual rights against state violation. That, that was an innovation. So the 14th Amendment says that uh, states can't violate your due process of law or equal protection of the laws or privileges or immunities of citizenship. Um, again, that's that that was a revolutionary type of thing. It, it restructured fundamentally our constitutional order. Uh, and so, um, you know, when we're talking about you know, most of the so-called culture war issues or rights claims, whether it's abortion 
or guns or same-sex marriage, the things that tend to come up. Generally, those are challenges to state laws. And so even in the Bruin case, which we'll talk about regarding the right to bear arms, uh, sure, it's a Second Amendment case, but it's really a 14th Amendment case because that's how that right applies to the states. And one more bit of uh, housekeeping before we jump into the cases, the concept of stare decisis, or uh, I think literally means um, uh, let the decision stand. stand. By, yeah, let stand by things decided. Um, how does that weigh in on the court? It effectively says, you know, we, we need to look to the past. A lot has been alleged that uh, in, in confirmation hearings, uh, those who have said they believe in stare decisis and then change their mind. Your book, I think, was very useful in saying, uh, while it's a principle, it's one that everybody seems to have um, uh, violated. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, say more about stare decisis. I think the only two justices on the current court who are consistent with regard to stare decisis are Clarence Thomas and Elena Kagan. Uh, Thomas, uh, I'm answering the question backward because I haven't defined it yet. I'll, I'll get to that. But Thomas basically uh, always uh, prefers to get the law right. Uh, you know, forget you know how disruptive overturning the precedent might be. And uh, Kagan, I don't think ever votes to overturn precedent, uh, probably because she's always had an eye on Roe v. Wade. That's how this concept is often uh, kind of viewed, has been viewed through that lens. But it's the idea that sometimes disrupting the uh, legal architecture or the stability, social stability, um, uh, that kind of disruption is greater and, and, and would be a bigger wrong than righting the wrong of an erroneous previous decision. And so there, this is a prudential doctrine. It's not listed in the Constitution or anything like that. But it's the idea that uh, sometimes it's better to let uh, erroneous precedent stand um, than to correct it. Uh, just because, for example, businesses have been built uh, on those kinds of reliance interests. If you uh, rule a certain way, and all of a sudden, you know, all of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, have to dissolve. Uh, that's quite disruptive. Courts would want to, someone who has a, uh, you know, thinking about stare decisis would, on, would want to avoid that kind of result. Um, and so, uh, again, Thomas doesn't care so much about that. He's the most uh, consistent in saying, I want to get the law right. I don't care if it's a hundred year old precedent that lots of people have relied on. I don't care if it's last term, I'm, I'm going to vote for what the right law is. Kagan says, no, we, we shouldn't disrupt. We should build on, on the previous and, and, and things like that. And everyone else is in between and, and is very much fair weather. Uh, that is the, 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 if one of the considerations in stare decisis is how wrong was the previous precedent? Well, uh, everyone essentially other than Thomas and Kagan says, you know, finds, precedent that they really like to be not very wrong at all and, and precedent they don't like to be egregiously wrong as the as the uh as the standard has evolved so okay now we've set the table let's get into the some of the cases let's start with the most uh let's say controversial the um perhaps i i don't know um uh for our listeners so we're going to talk about dobbs uh, versus jackson women's health organization which did indeed explicitly overturn uh, the finding in row uh, which has lasted for nearly 50 years, 1973. Um, explain the argument, and then let's talk about the way in which um, Dobbs refuted the argument, um, uh, the argument for Roe. I mean, again, I know these are deep topics, so we're, you know, these are sort of the 
quick explanations, but uh, give us a quick. Yeah, the rulings themselves are not that complicated. And and should I wrote a piece in the um, in the Washington Examiner last week saying that there they really shouldn't be. You can disagree with the various rulings in, in these big controversial cases, school choice and guns and religion and abortion, um, but they shouldn't be seen as, as radical or, or extreme or, or complicated in some way. So the ruling in Dobbs is uh, is simply that uh, there is no deeply rooted uh, right to abortion, uh, as Justice Alito found in his majority opinion in looking at American history, uh, and therefore it's uh, subject to state regulation rather than some federal uh, uh, baseline. Uh, I wouldn't have uh, decided it quite that way. I think I, I do think that Roe versus Wade is without constitutional basis. Uh, you know, I would have uh, looked at things a, a different way in terms of, as you said, natural rights through the Privileges or Immunities Clause rather than this deeply rooted test uh, that was put in in a case 30 years ago called Glucksburg. Um, but but in any event, uh, this uh, even before uh, overturning Roe and Casey, because importantly, Planned Parenthood versus Casey for the last 30 years has been the governing standard for looking at abortion restrictions and regulations. What you know, Roe put in a, a trimester system and kind of a sliding scale based on viability of the fetus of when uh, states can regulate. Uh, Casey threw that out and it preserved the right to abortion, of course, but it, it put in an undue burden standard. And you know, for the longest time, the joke that, uh, was that what, what's an undue burden? Well, it's whatever gave Justice Kennedy a headache because uh, he's the only one. He was the deciding vote and nobody else knew what, you know, what that actually meant. Um, but uh, this case came along from Mississippi, which had a uh, a law restricting abortion uh, past 15 weeks, I think with exceptions for, for the mother's health. Uh, curiously, that law is actually more liberal than those laws in place in most Western European countries, uh, Germany, France, Denmark, Spain, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on. I think only the UK and, and, and the Netherlands have uh, more uh, liberal, less restrictive rules than that. But nevertheless, uh, that's Mississippi's law. Um, the conventional wisdom before oral argument was that the court would sort of muddle through, that this court might eventually overturn Roe, but this would be an incremental step. They'd find a way to uphold the, Missis the Mississippi law without overturning Roe. Well, it turns out, based on oral argument, uh, which changed everybody's minds about how the case was going to go, and this was confirmed by the eventual decision, uh, only John Roberts took that uh, compromise position, uh, as it were. Um, everyone else, including the advocates for both sides, said that the court had to go fully up or fully down, meaning uphold or overturn Roe fully, um, which was which was interesting. Uh, a bit of a gamble, I'd probably for for both uh, sides' advocates, um, but that's uh, that, that that's what they said, and and ultimately, um, that's what the decision was uh, was based on. First, that the right was not deeply rooted in American history. Uh, such as the modern jurisprudence regarding unenumerated rights uh, requires that kind of analysis. And second, principles of stare decisis do not militate uh, for, for maintaining Roe and Casey despite their uh, lack of constitutional foundation. The dissenting justices, the three more liberal ones, to use that shorthand, um, uh, argued mostly on consequentialist and stare decisis grounds, basically saying it would be too much of a disruption after 50 years uh, to... to, to uh, to, to overturn these precedents. As a, a, a constitutional matter, there's a lot of people who are concerned about this uh, in the most extreme decision, if, if it is indeed entirely left to the decisions of the states, um, the, the health or the, the 
life of the mother, I, I'm careful, to not, it's not actually the health or it is the, indeed the life of the mother. Is that constitution protected? And in other words, does the constitution recognize an absolute right for mothers to save their own lives in a life-threatening pregnancy? We'll see. I'm sure there's going to be litigation over this because we've we've already, uh, you know, less than two weeks after the decision came down, or I guess now it's, it is exactly two weeks since the decision came down as we're recording this. Um, the, uh, the uh, uh, states have done all sorts of things. And I don't know if there's any law that's been passed that does not have an exception for the life of the mother. Uh, but that would be, you know, it's not that there won't ever be litigation now that Roe is overturned. Uh, if states acted arbitrarily or applied their restrictions uh, unequally um, in some way, whether you know based on, on race or based on some other arbitrary consideration, then that would be subject to uh, to litigation, or what about fetal abnormalities, or what about uh, you know there, there's definitions that uh, legislative drafters in the various states could make errors or not foresee uh, fully certain things. There was a hubbub a few months ago. I think it was Missouri or somebody was uh, the way that their draft legislation worked uh, didn't even allow uh, abortion for uh, ectopic pregnancies, that is implantation in the fallopian tubes, which are non-viable and and by definition life threatening. Uh, and uh, that was a mistake. That wasn't some, I don't think it was some moral judgment that that uh, some you know extremist lawmaker was putting in. They just didn't draft it correctly. So uh, you know, we'll see litigation based on the way that different restrictions work. And I don't want to dwell on this case, but just one more issue. The, the Thomas uh, uh, concurrence uh, went a step further in, in, in saying the, this right didn't exist, and it was predicated on a, um, I don't know if you would call it an imaginary or a, a conjured right of, 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 of privacy in this case, that those other so-called privacy-related rights um, in more modern cases, those that relate to um, uh, interracial marriage, gay marriage, uh, right to contraception, those things that have been found to be constitutionally protected, it, it, it may undermine uh, the, the foundation of those rulings and perhaps jeopardize those as, as recognized by the Constitution. Do you see that, you know, is that an outlier, is Thomas, or is that sort of a, a, a true, let's say, uh, originalist view of, of these kinds of privacy-oriented rights? I think it's it's not an outlier to criticize substantive due process um, because of the way the jurisprudence has evolved. It's it's much more constitutionally sound to protect most uh, substantive rights through the privileges or immunities clause than the due process clause. Um, the due process clause isn't wholly uh, isn't entirely procedural. So uh, you know a well functioning transparent kangaroo court still violates the due process of law clause, uh, but. Um, the way that the jurisprudence has evolved, you know, Thomas is quite right to say that, you know, for example, Roe itself, which was based on an earlier case, uh, Griswold, uh, regarding uh, the right to contraception, found that right to privacy, um, not in the Ninth Amendment or the uh, Privileges or Immunities Clause. Uh, there was a concurrence by Justice Goldberg about the Ninth Amendment, but it was about how certain parts of the Bill of Rights have emanations that overlap, making penumbras, this very kind of physics heavy, like light beam uh, analysis. And these rights are hidden in those in those uh, in those penumbras. That that's uh, the legal term for that analysis is hogwash. So, I, you know, I to the extent that that's what Thomas is saying, I, I fully agree with that. Now, the consequences for the application of the right to privacy or some of these other things that's, you know, that's unclear. Thomas himself, I'm sure, would uphold some of these rights on an equal protection basis. He himself is in an, in, in an interracial marriage. I'm sure he's not 
trying to uh, invalidate his own uh, his own marriage. But the things like that, or same-sex marriage, for that matter, I think are more uh, faithfully uh, argued and protected under equal protection than um, than than a substantive uh, rights protections. Other things like contraceptives or um, uh, or private uh, sexual behaviors, say, um, uh, you know. I, that, you know, I my my own view is that privacy is certainly protected uh, in various ways, uh, um, uh, but uh, substantive due process. I think he was correct to identify the weakness there. But for practical purposes, um, you have to note that the majority, uh, the, written by Justice Alito and signed by joined by Justice Thomas, joined by five members, not not Roberts. He only concurred in the judgment, but the, the Alito's opinion did say that for various reasons distinguished abortion from everything else. Because with abortion, at a certain point, there's a second life in being. There's a second human who has rights. What that point is, he says, uh, you know, courts, judges, lawyers aren't uh, equipped uh, to point out, which is why he sent it back to the states. But unlike with all these other activities with consenting adults, here there's a second right, uh, second life uh, in being. And finally, I don't think there's a, you know, the the most recent polling about contraceptives shows. Uh, a desire to ban contraceptives to be in the low single digits in America. Indeed. I don't want to dwell on that, so let's move on. Uh, another important case, uh, Bruin. We actually had an episode, an entire, entire episode of uh, Hubwonk on Bruin. We talked with uh, your former colleague, Trevor Burrows, about the issue. Um, I just want to ask you, uh, in your view, did the ruling, um, I think it was a 6-3 decision, uh, did it follow along originalist versus consequentialist? In my reading of the dissent, it just said, look, uh, if we don't do something about guns, uh, a lot of people die. It didn't really appeal to some sort of uh, constitutional uh, 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 weakness in, in the Bruin case, but rather just sort of uh, uh, you know an emotional appeal to the consequences of, of uh, holding Bruin. That's exactly right, Joe. Unlike Heller, uh, the, the previous uh, Second Amendment case in 2008 uh, involving the right to keep guns uh, at home for, for self-defense, uh, where both Justice Scalia's majority opinion and Justice Stevens's dissent were dueling originalist opinions. Here, uh, Thomas's for the majority, uh, and this, by the way, we can, we can talk about this. I think this is the, really the term where after 30 years on the bench, uh, finally, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas is at the apogee of his powers because he's the senior associate justice. And so in cases like uh, Bruin and Dobbs, for that matter, where the chief justice isn't fully on board, it's Thomas who's either writing the opinion as he did in Bruin or assigning it as, as he did in Dobbs. But Thomas's opinion is, is uh, very originalist and Breyer's in dissent uh, is not. Uh, it, it is consequentialist, as you said. So it's, it's different than uh, what Stevens's was in, in Heller 14 years ago. So again, I want to move on then to the West Virginia uh, versus EPA. I found this very interesting. Uh, it didn't get a lot of press, but uh, it's something we talked about in our, in our earlier um, uh, episode, talking about um, at what point when Congress um, delegates power to uh, con- uh, to an executive agency, at what point is it obligated to define uh, you know the limits of its of its uh, delegation of power? Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to use the layman term and and sort of paraphrase, I think, the essence of what you said is the more important the issue or the larger the uh, mandate, the more the need, the obligation to define that in in the uh, delegation, meaning you can't just give away huge powers in in small ways. You have to be clear. Uh, And I think the the um, the Supreme Court decided against the EPA when regulating power plants. Say more about what your view of, of that decision was. 
Yeah, this uh, opinion did get some press. Um, it was decided on the last day of the term, uh, an opinion by by Chief Justice John Roberts, and he paired it with another opinion uh, in an immigration case where he ruled for the administration. So he's trying to be cagey, you know, one for the, the administration, one against. Um, and uh, the opinion said, uh, as you were discussing, that for major, what are called major questions, Congress has to be explicit if it's giving that kind of awesome power to an agency. What the what the government here argued, starting with the Obama administration and now with the Biden administration, uh, is that if you look at several provisions in the Clean Air Act, uh, and you kind of almost like that penumbras and emanations in the abortion context or the privacy context, if you put these various provisions together, that gives the EPA the power to regulate in this novel way, even though it's uh, you know, hugely economically significant. And the court rejected that because uh, for uh, regulations that, that, that of, of major questions, whether in terms of economics, in terms of social impact or what have you, um, uh, Congress really does have to speak clearly. We can't just assume or defer to uh, an agency's interpretation of its own uh, operative statute uh, uh, in that way. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting. The court did not, as many expected, uh, apply uh, or discuss what's known as Chevron deference, which is deference that judges give to uh, agency interpretations. It simply said, we don't even have to get into that because the statute is 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 silent and uh, we're not going to implicitly read in these major powers in major questions. Um, uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote a concurrence joined by Justice Alito that expounded more about giving guidance to lower courts about what a major question is. And that's an important concurrence because uh, those two, Gorsuch and Alito, were on opposite sides in a case called Gundy a few years ago, which used yet again a different doctrine uh, called non-delegation. They were on, on opposite sides of applying the, the, the idea that Congress can't delegate legislative power. But here on major questions, which is kind of the flip side of non-delegation, they, they were together. So clearly the court is without having to get into some of these other doctrines, using this major question doctrine to limit um, uh, uh, administrative reach. And so uh, throwing the ball back into Congress's court and saying, if you really wanna have this you know, awesome, major, significant, controversial clean power plan uh, 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 in place, you're gonna have to legislate it and take the political hits yourself. Indeed, again, going back to some of the themes in your book, it's uh, really, Congress ought to be doing its job and, and legislating and, and uh, and the executive branch ought to be executing those uh, those laws. Um, I read the Kagan dissent, and it was really chilling in that uh, it's, uh, the uh, essential argument for um, supporting the EPA was EPA is full of experts and Congress doesn't know very much. So uh, experts should be running the show, not elected officials. I, I, you know, as, as well as the kind of Obama pen and phone argument that uh, when Congress won't act, uh, I will. This is too important an issue, you know, not to have this this uh, this lawmaking on. In, indeed, yeah, I got. I heard my Kennedy School uh, uh, professors uh, applauding Kagan's um, point of view, uh, but it's not one I share. Uh, so we're running out of time. I want to jump into the, the final. These are sort of uh, the tension of um, religion. In one case, it's in a school, and the other, well, it, they're both school related. One where the uh, a football coach. Uh, wanted to pray after a game, uh, Kennedy versus uh, Bremerton School District, and the also the school voucher in Maine uh, that could be applied to religious schools. I think let's just 
dilate a little bit and, and sort of talk about this idea of um, we, in the First Amendment, we don't want to establish a religion, but we also want to uh, respect the practice of religion. So uh, share with our listeners, where is that tension resolved? How, how does the state protect your right to exercise your religion without being seen to be establishing that as a, as a religion? Basically, where the court is going is that uh, religion does not have to depart the public sphere. As long as the government isn't coercing uh, people to, towards a particular religion or religion in general, as long as it's not discriminating against people, whether that's in terms of students in public schools or, or other contexts uh, who, who don't adopt a particular tenet, um, then you know, if, you're, if people are acting in their private capacity, then the, the government uh, isn't going to stop that. And at the same time, when it has uh, institutes programs, it, it can't treat religious institutions differently than secular ones, um, which is different than uh, this was uh, discussed in the Kennedy versus Bremerton case, the, the praying coach, the, the lemon test from a case called Lemon versus Kurtzman 50 years ago that talked about an entanglement of religion, uh, an entanglement of government with, with religion that effectively had been read to uh, uh, you know, uh, negate any 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 religiosity, any exercise in the public square. Um, uh, Justice Gorsuch in the Kennedy case uh, said that 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 Lemon had long ago been abandoned, and indeed it hadn't been used by the court as a governing uh, doctrine in a long, long time. All the juice had been squeezed out of the lemon, so now they were discarding the rind, if you will. Um, and conversely, with the school choice case, so when Maine created this program of tuition assistance and said parents could use it to uh, send their kids to, to any, any school of their choice, except religious ones. And the court said, look, you don't have to have this kind of program, but if you do, you can't treat religious schools differently than, 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 than secular ones. So that's, that's where we are on uh, the state of, of, of religion. And I think it's tremendously overwrought to say, as a lot of media commentators did, or as Justice Sotomayor did in her uh, dissent in, in Carson, that this eviscerates the division between separation of church and state. And the separation of church and state itself uh, comes from a case in the early 80s called Everson, and, or sorry, an interpretation of, a, of, 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 of Everson's line from, I think, the, the 40s or 50s. And it's, it's more complicated than simply saying, you know, uh, religion can't enter the public sphere and the public sphere can't enter religion. So we're getting to the end of the show. We uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that we're getting a um, a, a change of just justices in the new term. We're uh, losing Breyer, who is retiring, and we're getting uh, the new newly appointed uh, Katanji uh, Brown Jackson uh, as his replacement. Uh, I think they're both regarded as again we, we shorthand is liberal justices. How do you think uh, her joining the court will change, if at all, uh, how the courts uh, will will uh, decide cases? Um, I don't know if I can off the top of my head identify cases where she would vote differently than the justice she's replacing, her former boss, uh, uh, Stephen Breyer, for whom she clerked. So in terms of vote count, I don't think things will be very different. Um, you have different specializations. Breyer was famously an administrative law specialist. I'm not sure whether Justice Jackson really uh, carved out a niche for herself uh, in terms of substantive areas of law. And as Justice White used to say, every every justice makes for a new court uh, in terms of their internal dynamics. Um, you know, how convincing will she be? How um, you know, uh, in, in terms of the, the the social dynamics behind the scenes, which don't necessarily affect justices' votes on major issues, but they can affect the way they interact and um, you know the 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 dynamic of the court. Uh, 
uh, more broadly? Will she, you know, turn off Chief Justice Roberts and in effect marginally have him closer to uh, his his more uh, conservative colleagues? I, I, I don't know. I, I think in the short term, we're not going to see that much of a difference other than in oral argument, the absence of Justice Breyer's kind of long meandering multi-part hypotheticals and uh, those kinds of opinions that he was known for uh, with kind of a pragmatic multi-factor balancing test. So it would be less about her um, uh, judicial um, capabilities or her her, um, uh, wisdom, but rather her salesmanship, uh, how she can influence others either to her position or not alienate others away from her position. Uh, That would be more influential than perhaps the uh, uh, how she decides a particular case. I think that's probably right. All right. We've run out of time. I appreciate you being with us now. One last chance to uh, plug your uh, book before we go. Uh, I think it's a must read for those who want to pretend to be uh, constitutional scholars at cocktail parties. Um, uh, Where can our listeners get your brand new paperback book? Sure. I mean, you can go to Amazon, of of course, but you can also uh, uh, type in supremedisorder.com and that'll give you lots of options of where you can get it beyond Amazon, independent booksellers and whatnot. And also there you can download for free a 20 page statistical historical appendix of all Supreme Court confirmation battles, as well as uh, some lower court ones in the modern era. Uh, and in addition to my book, I have uh, my new Substack to plug. Uh, this is a digital platform, digital newsletter. Uh, it's called Shapiro's Gavel. And there you can subscribe for free. Um, I, I, I've committed to at least one post uh, a week. Uh, and I'll have other stuff for paid subscribers. There's going to be additional uh, goodies. It's, uh, you know, it's reader supported, uh, uh, as they say. Um, and, um, you know, we'll see where, we'll see where that takes us. It's an interesting thing for, you know, thoughts and musings and analysis that I wouldn't necessarily write up in the pages, of the wall street journal or newsweek or, or the examiner. Perfect, perfect stuff for uh, those of us who are, uh, Ilya Shapiro groupies. So, uh, thanks for that plug. So, uh, we're at the end of our time together. Thank you again for joining me, Ilya. It was great. Uh, and I really do wish you luck at your new home at the Manhattan Institute. Thanks very much. I, I'm uh, you know, come back from vacation, tanned, rested, and ready to uh, be uh, in the arena. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. You can now find Hubwonk on YouTube at the Pioneer Institute channel. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer us a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or suggestions or comments about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.